Well, good evening, everyone. We are going to begin a new series tonight uh, for my rotation, a new series. And we're going to be going through the book of Esther. What a great book it is. Um, Esther is a uh, really a rich <clears throat> and very, very encouraging book. It's a simple story. It's fairly easy to follow, to understand. It's not shrouded in a lot of mystery. Um, for the most part, it's straightforward in its, in its meaning and in its message. Now, the primary focus and purpose of the book of Esther is not to reveal new or unknown doctrine to Israel. That was not the purpose of the book. Its focus is on application. It's on applying what God had previously revealed and applying it in new and different circumstances than Israel had experienced before, even in difficult and unanticipated circumstances. Now, there is, however, some controversy about the book among teachers and pastors and commentators. And here's what I have found to be the three most common views within this controversy of the book of Esther. Number one, some view the book of Esther as what's termed as historical fiction. Now, historical fiction is, it's a story that is not a documentation of actual history, but it's based on history. So the the characters in historical fiction could be purely fictional, totally fictional, or they could be actual historical figures or a combination of both. Poetic or, or creative license is often usually taken to depict characters and events and places. Um, So, although they might not be historically accurate, perfectly accurate, the idea in this type of genre or literature is to portray a fundamentally historically accurate picture. Okay, to kind of give the reader the feeling of having been there, even though everything is not perfectly accurate. Now, proponents of this view see the book of Esther as a historical account in which much, a lot of creative or, 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 or fictional license has been taken. And they claim that there are inconsistencies, certain inconsistencies with the story of Esther when compared with other extra-biblical accounts of the same time period. Okay, now this, this view, it's largely, not exclusively, but it's largely based on the particular writing style of the book of Esther, when it's compared to other historical books from the Bible. The proponents of this view 
feel that it's more of a combination or a hybrid of historical documentation and allegory. Okay? They feel that it doesn't fit comfortably into any specific biblical genre, so they have simply placed it in its own genre. Okay? So that's, that's the first view. The second view is this. It's called fictional narrative. And some view the book of Esther as fictional narrative. Uh, proponents of this view see the book of Esther as a story. A creative short story. Fiction. And that the writers have used a, a historical setting meant to enhance the story and to help them to better emphasize its purpose and its message, not to document historical events. Okay, now, this view, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an easy view because it allows total creative license. So there's no concern whatsoever over inconsistencies when they compare the book of Esther to extra-biblical accounts of the same time period, the same events, or even the same characters. Okay, those are the first two views. The third view is what, what I call taking it at face value. The proponents of this view, they view it in this way. This is one of the 66 divinely inspired books of the Holy Bible. It's God's revealed written word. And as such, our responsibility is to understand what God's communicating through it to his people in its pages, not try to classify it into a man-made category or genre. This is how I see the book of Esther. Okay, I am convinced that it is a real story about real people in a real place at a real time. And I base this on the fact that there's nothing specific, nothing inherent within its pages that leads me to or requires me to view it differently. I feel, in my, this is my opinion, I think that the proponents of these other views that I've described, that what they do is they create problems that aren't actually there, and then they attempt to solve those problems. Rather than just expositing the text for what it actually is. Okay? So that's my view. Now, before we move on from this, I want to point out what I believe is a, is a very important perspective on this. And let me begin by saying that most good, solid reliable teachers, pastors, commentators agree on the overall message and meaning of the book of Esther, even if they hold some of these other views. However, there's a problem when we redefine history as fiction. There's just an inherent problem there. Those who read the fictional account 
most often what happens is, in their minds, they blend fact with fiction. And this ends up producing a skewed view or a skewed outlook or perspective of the actual historical people and events. Okay, now, this problem is greatly, and I mean tremendously magnified, when we're dealing with biblical history that's been recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not just any historical event that we're talking about here. These are, we're talking about biblical records, biblical history, and and this book was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, I am convinced, and I want to be careful here, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm understood, that I'm not misunderstood. I'm convinced that teachers, pastors, and commentators who identify the book of Esther as fiction, I believe that they are in not heretical, but very serious error. Okay? Um, I point all of this out. I say all of this for this purpose. I encourage anyone, anyone here, anyone whoever might listen to this, um, this study or this series of studies, I encourage anyone who has been taught and or holds one of these other views to reconsider your view and the implications of holding that view. Okay? All right, next I want to point out a, and and this is my term, I think this is my term anyway, I want to point out what I'm calling a theological distinctive of the book of Esther. This is very, very well known. Most, uh, you know, most, most uh, commentaries on the book of Esther right up front, they point this out. So it's probably not news to anyone, but I do want to take a moment and point this out. Throughout the book of Esther, the words God and Lord are not found anywhere in the book. Anywhere. Not one time. God is not specifically mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. And interestingly, Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where this is true. So it raises a question. Does this mean that the book of Esther is in some way flawed? Is there a problem with the book of Esther? Or perhaps, is the book of Esther not even inspired scripture that belongs in the Bible, as some have speculated and believe? Well, my answer to that question is absolutely not. 100% absolutely not. And let me explain. At this time in history, Israel was in continuing exile in Babylon and Persia. And God had and was continuing to fade from their national awareness and their national focus. 
This was their failure, Israel's failure, certainly not the Lord's failure in any way. Their failure to keep the Lord in focus and at the forefront of their minds in and through their lives and their circumstances did not in any way, shape, or form deter the Lord from keeping them, from keeping his people as a priority of his own focus and his own concern. In this story, Israel was going through circumstances so difficult and so dangerous that it threatened their very existence as a people. And through it all, God steadfastly maintained his love and his faithfulness to them and to his covenant promises. Let me just, by way of reminder, let me read to you from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we need to know really know and embrace is that God moved in an extraordinary way in the days of Mordecai and Esther, but he did so behind the scenes, so to speak, behind the scenes in a way that only the eyes of the faithful can see and understand. Only the eyes of the faithful could see that it was God at work throughout this story. God moved in sovereignty and in providence to ensure the fulfillment of his promises and the continuance of his covenant people. Let's let's keep that in mind as we progress through this, this story. Okay, let's talk about the author for just a moment of the book of Esther. Now, ultimately, we know that God is the author of the book of Esther. God is the author of all of Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. However, we don't know who its human author is. We just don't know who physically, who the human is that wrote the book of Esther. Some have speculated. Uh, some have speculated that its author is one of the two people who knew the events of the story best. Esther or Mordecai, right? Others have speculated that Ezra was the author and they put together, you know, arguments pointed in that direction. Bottom line is, we just don't know. 
We don't know because God chose not to reveal the author to us. It was God's choice. And personally, I believe that not knowing its human author aids us in focusing our attention on what the story itself reveals. Very high level, that is this. How God preserved his people during a time of seemingly eminent destruction. As we, as we go through this series <clears throat> and develop the events of this story, we will see that many, many, many times it just seemed completely hopeless for Israel. They were going to be annihilated and there was no stopping it. But God preserved them. That's one of the main focuses of the story. And the other has to do with the Feast of Purim. It's all about how the Feast of Purim was established and and what it's all about. So back to the author of the book. We just don't know, right? We don't know for sure. What we do know for certain is this. Not knowing its human author does not in any way, in any way, shape, or form, make this wonderful and blessed story any less profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Praise God. Let me talk just for a moment about the main theme of the book. And that main theme is twofold. First, it has to do with hope. Hope for God's people. Even when, and you know, you might or might not be able to relate to this, but even when you might feel that God is not present in your circumstances or that he's not paying attention to your difficulties, the truth of the matter is, of course, the truth of the matter is that God is always present in the lives and circumstances of his people. Even, and I would say, especially in difficulties. And I'm going to go one step further. Even more than being aware of and paying attention to your difficulties, oftentimes God intends for you to experience the difficulties that you experience. He intends it. Often, he's even the initiator of those difficulties. Let me take you back in time just for a moment and remind you of something I'm, I'm sure that you all know very well. It's from Genesis chapter 50. I want to read two verses, verse 15 and then verse 20. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, Joseph responded to that. They weren't speaking directly to Joseph, but he heard what they had said. And he responded, and this is his response, verse 20. Now he's speaking directly to his brothers and he says, as for you, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And the implication here is that God wasn't responding to the evil that Joseph's brothers did to him. He wasn't responding to it. He intended it to happen. He meant for it to happen. He just had a different purpose than his brothers had. And that's what these two verses point out. So God intends many of the difficulties and challenges in our lives. Not for, never for our destruction, never for our harm, or our pointless or meaningless suffering. No, but to serve sanctifying benefit to us. I want to read three short passages to you that demonstrate this, um, this principle. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. God disciplines us. God takes us through difficulties because he loves us. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know this all so well, don't we? All things includes all. All of the difficulties that we go through, they serve a purpose. They serve God's purpose. And then finally, James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness Have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, let it sanctify you. So the reality in this is that true faith trusts and believes that difficulties will produce sanctification. The choice is cooperate with it. And receive the sanctification or don't cooperate with it and just go through the difficulties, not receiving the benefit and the blessing of sanctification. And don't forget, get ready to go through it again because God is a patient God. He takes us through it over and over again until we get what he intends us to get. God is a loving and caring father. And as such, He always, 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 he always provides for his children. He always protects his children. And he always delivers his children from danger and from difficulty. Now, here's the thing. What's necessary in order to see this hope is to know and understand 
that his provision, his protection, and his deliverance doesn't always come in the way that we want it to come. Right? Can you relate to that? It just doesn't always happen the way we want it to happen. Oftentimes, it comes in ways that we would never, ever choose. Even sometimes in ways that we don't understand. Doesn't make any sense to me. But I know this. He provides for me. He protects me. And he delivers me. So the paths that God chooses for us are paths that always, 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 always lead to glorifying his name, advancing his kingdom, and moving us closer to bearing a more accurate image of Christ in a greater way than we currently do. Always. When we orient our hearts and our understanding to this principle, when we do that, we experience God's hope in all of our circumstances. Always. The book of Esther is a multi-leveled example of this hope and heart orientation. And that's what we're going to be unpacking as we go through this story. And that's our responsibility and our blessing to unpack the many, many details, all of the levels of this book and apply them in and to our lives. Okay, now the second element of the main theme of this book has to do with, like I said before, the Festival of Purim. And when we get there, we'll fully develop this. But the book ends with the powerful beginning and introduction of the Festival of Purim. It's a festival that celebrates God's faithfulness to provide for, to protect, and to deliver his people in all circumstances, all circumstances, and to turn their sorrow into gladness, their mourning into celebration. Praise God. Okay, I want to um, give you a little bit of information, specific information about the book itself. So I'm going to give you a list and a brief description of the main characters in the story. Number one, King Ahasuerus. Now, King Ahasuerus ruled over the entire Persian Empire. It was the greatest empire then standing on the face of the earth. His wealth and his power were second to none at the time. He was, like most monarchs of the day, he was a man that was totally given over to pride. His boastfulness is seen in the the lavish feasts, or otherwise known as parties, that he hosted. And we're going to be looking closely at a couple of these in the first chapter. The first one... This party that he threw lasted for 180 days. 180 days. Do you know how long that is? 
That's six months. That is half a year. 180 days. And this was for all of his, uh, all of the, the high ranking guys, all of his officials, all of his nobles, his governors, the armies, okay? 180 days. Then when that came to an end, he has another party. Okay, now this one only, only lasted for seven days. That's, this is a short one, right? A seven-day party. And this was for <clears throat> all of the commoners in the capital city of Susa. He was into partying. His drunkenness is displayed throughout the story. His anger and vindictiveness are seen in... Starting next week, we're going to be going through chapter 1. Anger and vindictiveness is seen in chapter 1 through his response to his wife's unwillingness to display herself to his drunken entourage at this great party of his. He was lustful. He maintained a large harem I mean a large harem of the beautiful young women throughout his empire. Lustful. He was capricious, which basically means to be unpredictable or or to have unpredictable mood swings, to be fickle, even unstable. One example, and again, you know, some of these, these examples that I'm throwing at you, we'll fully develop these when we get to them. But from, uh, from chapter 3, without fact-checking of any kind, he gives the fate of an entire race of people to his evil second-in-command. Just like that. No, no fat just believes what he says and hands the fate of an entire race of people over to this guy. So what we're going to see about King Ahasuerus is through his pride and his arrogance, we're going to see as the story unfolds and we develop it chapter by chapter, what we're going to see is God's intention being accomplished through King Ahasuerus, through his pride, through his arrogance. It's much like it reminds me of the story of Pharaoh in the Exodus account. We'll see this as we develop the story. Okay, that's King Ahasuerus. Next is Queen Vashti. Now, we're not given a whole lot of information about Queen Vashti. I mean, by the end of chapter one, she's gone from the story. What we do know of her is that she was one of many wives of King Ahasuerus. She was crowned his queen, so apparently she must have held a special place in his heart for some reason, because he chose her out of, you know, anybody uh, to be his queen, most likely because of her physical beauty. Okay. Now, we're not told the specifics as to why, but she refuses the king when he issues a command. She refuses to leave her own banquet, 
her own party that she's having. She refuses to leave that and come to the king's party at his command. On the final day of a, of a seven-day feast, that, that the short party he was throwing, the last day in which he had displayed, for these seven days he displayed all of his riches, all of his glory, all of his power in multiple ways to the inhabitants of, um, of the capital city. And on that final day, towards the end of the day, so this is, this is the, the crescendo. He commands Queen Vashti to come and to display herself in front of all of the people. Her refusal, she refuses him, and that refusal results in her being dethroned and banished from the king's presence. So that's Queen Vashti. Then there's Mordecai. Mordecai is the uncle and foster father to Esther. He raised and loved Esther as his own daughter. His love for her was second only to his love for the Lord himself. One example of of his display of love for her was after she was taken into the king's household, Mordecai would walk by the court of the women's house, which is where uh, Esther stayed. He would walk by the front of it every day. For an entire year, he did this. Every day, he walked by and inquired as to her activities and her well-being. He loved her. And then, of course, there is Esther herself. Her um, uh, Hebrew name, Hadassah. Esther was a young Jewish girl who is described in the book as having a beautiful figure and being lovely to look at. So she was a young, beautiful girl. She was orphaned at an early age when her, her father and mother died. And then Mordecai, who was her father's nephew, Mordecai took her in and raised her as his own daughter. And we're told that she loved Mordecai as her own father. She respected him as her own father. And we'll see that even as queen, she looked to him, to Mordecai, for guidance, and she followed his counsel. We'll see as the story unfolds that Esther is sovereignly placed to accomplish God's plan in the history of his people. This takes place in less than ideal circumstances and situations that are potentially dangerous and even deadly to Esther herself. Similar, again, I'm making a connection here, similar to the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, rising from being thrown into a pit and sold into slavery to a position of great influence and great authority, all for the purpose of saving God's people. And then finally, we have Haman, our villain, 
Haman is the unprincipled chief minister to King Ahasuerus with an innate passion for personal gain and advancement or, or elevation. He was evil. He was evil and wicked, and he would literally stop at nothing to secure his own glory. He plotted horrible, diabolical plans against Mordecai, which included the annihilation of the entire nation of Israel. He became enraged, angry with Mordecai, and he expresses this anger by saying, I'm going to destroy you and all of your people. (laughs) I think that Haman represents the worst attributes of unregenerate mankind. Narcissism. We'll see as we, as we go through the story. Haman was all about himself. Everything was about himself. Consuming discontentment. Again, we'll see. He had a lot. He was given much but he wanted more. He always wanted more. Jealousy. He was a jealous man. Bloodthirsty revenge. And I'm not exaggerating when I say bloodthirsty. You will see as we develop the story and and his plot against the Jewish people. He had bloodthirsty revenge. And this is to name but a few. So there's our list of main characters. Now I want to give you a very brief outline of the story. And this this will be brief. But just so you know where we are headed. There are three main sections in the book of Esther. I'm referring to them as the prologue, the main plot, and the epilogue. Now, the prologue, which is covered in chapters 1 and 2. In the prologue, we see Queen Vashti being dethroned. Esther becoming queen, and Mordecai becomes a hero. Now, the main plot, which is, you know, the the crux of the story, the largest part of the book, covers chapters 3 through 9. And in the main plot, we see quite a few things here. Haman plots to kill all the Jews, to annihilate the race. Mordecai and Esther come up with a plan to save their people. Esther goes before the king and she is favorably received by the king and prepares, very cleverly, prepares to expose Haman. Haman plots to murder Mordecai and then with a wonderful twist of events, Mordecai ends up being honored, and Haman is humiliated. Esther ends up bringing about Haman's destruction, and she wins the right from the king for the Jews to defend themselves against Haman's evil plot. 
And then this section concludes with the Jews completely destroying their enemies. On the day that they were to be annihilated, where all their enemies throughout the land were given permission to rise up against them and kill them and take all of their belongings. Again, a twist in the plot here. They end up completely destroying all of their enemies. And then the epilogue, which is chapters 9 and 10, is the establishment of the Feast of Purim. And we see Mordecai being exalted by the king to a very high rank and how he uses that power and influence um, to bring peace to everyone and to fully and accurately represent the Lord. All right, so there's a, a brief overview of the whole story. And then before we close for tonight, I want to spend just a couple moments and give you a description of the key section of the book. We'll fully develop this when we get there, but I want to fast forward for just a moment to chapter 4, and I'm going to read to you verses 11 through 16, and just very, very briefly exposit this passage. So Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, says, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. That was Esther saying that. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. So this is Mordecai's reply to Esther. He said to her, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief And deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So this passage, the full passage that I just read, is really what I see as the heart of the entire book. And then verse 14 being the single most important or the key verse of the entire book. Let me reread verse 14. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, like I said, I will fully exposit this section (coughs) when we get to it in our series. But let me give you just a brief preview before I close. In great wisdom, in tremendous wisdom here, Mordecai has a plan to save his people from Haman's evil plot against them. But his plan requires Esther's involvement in her possession as queen. The problem is is that there's great personal danger involved in this for Esther if she does what Mordecai is asking her to do. And she communicates that to him. And then Mordecai replies to her. We just read his, his response. And what he does here, what he is doing here in this response, without actually mentioning God, without saying God, he's reminding and encouraging Esther that God is indeed in control of this entire situation of the entire circumstance and that God has placed her in the position that she holds to serve not her own purposes, not her own benefit, but to serve his, to serve the Lord's. That's the crux of the whole book. And you see, this is a principle that is constantly at work in our lives And that we should keep at the forefront of our minds in all of our circumstances. Always. This is what we have to learn from this wonderful book. Okay. I want to give you a little bit of application. I know this is just an introduction and, uh, you know, overview of the book. But here's what I'd like everyone to do between now and, and next week. Read the book of Esther. You've probably all read it at least once before in your life, but I encourage you over this next week, read the book of Esther. Read it in one sitting. It's, it's 10 chapters long. It's not a real long book, and it's, it's, it's an easy read. It's a, it's a pleasant read. Read the book of Esther and think about, as you're reading it, think about the actions of the main characters that I've just described. Consider how you should or shouldn't emulate their behavior in your own life. Because what you'll you'll be reading are a lot of positive examples and a lot of negative examples. So consider that. Consider what godly and what ungodly principles they're displaying. And how you can apply or avoid these principles in your own lives. I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Ah, Father, thank you for this wonderful book you've given us to read, to study, and to meditate upon, this book of Esther. 
Father, please give us the grace to leave this place changed as a result of focusing our heart's attention on your holy word tonight. Please help us to keep you in focus, to keep you at the forefront of our hearts and our minds in and through all of our life and all of our circumstances. Amen.